You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. It is Tuesday, September 6th, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great holiday weekend, and I hope everybody is ready for a brand new episode of the Aerator Sports Podcast, and frankly, a brand new era of the Aerator Sports Podcast. That is right. If you did not listen to the show Friday, whoo, you missed quite a bit. So here is the deal. What here's what is going on with the Aerator Sports Podcast. Some of you may be watching on YouTube, maybe like I've never seen this dude in person before. So this is what I'm talking about with the new era of the Aerator Sports Podcast. So going forward, we are going to have five days a week. This week, it's only four, but five days a week of the Aerator Sports Podcast. We're going to try to make it a little bit shorter. Now, today's show will obviously be long. We have five days of college football to react to, but we are doing the Aerator Sports Podcast five days a week now. Most of the episodes will be in the 30 to 35 minute range. And again, all of them airing live on YouTube, 9 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, please make sure to do so because I'm telling you, we have some great content coming there. If you are subscribed, it's going to be the same deal. You get episodes every day. And then on top of that, you'll also get the normal clips that we have had forever. So with that said, it is a new era. It is Tuesday. I cannot wait to get rolling because, the, listen, I've said it many times. These Monday episodes during college football season are my favorite shows to do all season long. No disrespect to college football, no disrespect to college basketball, no disrespect to the playoff, NFL, whatever. When we are reacting to a full day of college football, there is nothing better on planet Earth than that. And we got a lot to react to today. We are going to open with what I think was unquestionably the game of the weekend, Utah at Florida. We learned a ton about both of those teams. Cannot wait to discuss that one. So much to talk about from both perspectives. Of course, Utah losing final play of the game, essentially on an interception. From there, we'll switch gears. And it sounds crazy because you'd think, what could I have possibly learned about Georgia in another 40-plus point win? I think there's something very interesting to consider there. And then finally, we'll wrap with Ohio State. Ironically, obviously, that was the game we were all looking forward to. I probably took a little bit less out of that game than just about any of the other marquee games. We'll kind of hit on some of the other games that happened throughout the weekend, open with Florida, Utah, discuss, uh, you know, the, the second game there, Oregon, Georgia. I think there's a lot from the Georgia perspective. Finally close with Ohio state, Notre Dame. Uh, Before we get to the meat of the show, I should mention, by the way, I told you, you missed a lot on Friday. And if you did miss uh, Friday's episode, There is another piece of information that you absolutely need to know, and there is no more time to waste. That piece of information is this. We have a brand new presenting sponsor for the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Betfred Sportsbook. They are the official presenting sponsor of not only the Aaron Torres Podcast, but all things Aaron Torres Media. Betfred is one of Europe's biggest sports books started in 1967 by Fred Doan. They are now in the U.S., and they have hit the market in a big way. 
They are the official betting partner of the Denver Broncos, Colorado Rockies, and now the Cincinnati Bengals and are currently licensed in Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Louisiana, Washington, and soon to be Ohio. More importantly, and I truly mean this, they're the perfect partner for us at Aaron Torres Media. They're a book that does more for its betters than anywhere else. From in-person events with betting competitions, weekly promotional offers that fit your betting size and patterns, and the personal touch that you won't find anywhere else. Betfred gives you more. Betfred betters, this is some of the stuff that they've just done to show you how much they appreciate you. Betfred betters have thrown out the first pitch at Colorado Rockies games, tailgated before the Bron- before Broncos games in Denver this week, week one. Thursday night, Arizona State played a home game. They had a suite for all of their biggest, best, most important bettors in the state of Arizona. That is the type of thing that Bedford does for you. When you play Bedford Sportsbook, no one gives out more and free bonuses than Bedford. The more you bet, the bigger the bonus. Again, they are the perfect sportsbook for Aaron Torres Media and the Aaron Torres Podcast. We could not be more excited to be working with them, excited about joining us on our journey as our presenting sponsor, And here's the best part, just for you guys and girls that listen to this show, incredible offer, bet 50, get 250 on any college football game this coming weekend. Week two is obviously coming. We got Kentucky, Florida, Texas, Alabama, on and on. Bet 50, get 250, all new signups in Colorado, Arizona, and Iowa. To learn more, visit betfredsports.com and cannot be more excited to have them as our official gambling partner official presenting sponsor really of the Aaron Torres sports podcast so with that said though thank you again to Bedfred but let's get to the topic of the day and the topic of the day it is week one in college football there might not be a show that I look forward to more than this one when for the first time in nine months we have a full Saturday of college football to react to and let me just tell you this is why college football this is why College football, there is no sport on planet Earth like college football. It is because we have spent literally, what, eight months, nine months since that championship game, Georgia, Alabama, talking and thinking about Notre Dame at Ohio State, talking and thinking about Oregon playing Georgia in Atlanta. Yet we are going to lead the show with what I believe to be the biggest and most important result of the show. And it came from an unranked team from the SEC, a Pac 12 team in Utah, and I thought this was no doubt the game of the day, Florida beating Utah 29-26 in the swamp. And when I think about this game, a couple things stand out. First of all, the thing that stands out more than anything is how much was really on the line for both teams, right? You think about just from the Florida perspective, first-year head coach coming off a disappointing season, completely fell apart, lost to South Carolina, lost to all these teams, Missouri down the stretch. And you think about everything that Billy Napier inherited and everything that went into this opener of the season, it's just a lot of pressure. And it's the pressure is ratcheted up because they got a tough schedule right out of the gate. They play Kentucky this coming weekend. They play Tennessee in a few weeks in Knoxville. And so you talk about a pressure cooker of a week one game for Billy Napier at home against a top 10 team in Utah. And then from the Utah perspective, look, we talked about it on Friday's podcast. If you listen to the college football betting show, we talked about it from the Utah perspective. I think they had as much pressure on them as anybody, because if you really are a playoff contender, and frankly, if you're representing your entire conference, you're going on the road, but you're doing it against a team that isn't Georgia, isn't Alabama, isn't Texas A&M. This is a game that you're supposed to win if you're Utah and a real playoff contender. And so when I look at this game, when I think about this game, and when I was watching this game on Saturday, it was that great college football moment where you could just feel the tension in the air. And this is no disrespect to the, uh, you know, the, the teams that play group of five teams in week one or the teams that play on a neutral field in week one or whatever. But I think being in the swamp, night one, you could feel the tension in the air. You could feel what it meant for both teams And you could feel just the intensity of this game, every single possession, every single play, and the the, the billing lived up to it, right? This was a game that I said I believed was the most intriguing game coming into the weekend, and it delivered with five different lead changes starting in the final two minutes of the first first half, excuse me, into the second half. 
And then on top of that, how about this? The way the game ended, uh, just, just iconic, right? Florida scores with a couple minutes to go. Utah gets the ball back. They drive the length of the field. They're in the red zone. There's 17 seconds left. What are you going to do? They're out of timeouts. They drop back. Are they going to, you know, try to just hold for a field goal? Are they going to throw the ball out of bounds? No, Cam Rising, the Utah quarterback, tries to make a play. It is intercepted by Florida, and Florida ends up winning this game. Again, 29-26. Now, I often say this, especially this time of year. This seems to be, by the way, my my September phrase during college football season, which is that, um, you know, oftentimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. But I'll say this. I think the more interesting story is actually in the winning locker room, because if I had a single takeaway from this entire weekend in college football, it was the Florida Gators and they just blew me away. And it's no disrespect to Georgia. It's no disrespect, maybe in a negative way to Oregon or in a negative way, maybe Ohio State didn't look as good as we thought. There is no bigger takeaway for me than the Florida Gators in week one. And what I would say about the Florida Gators is this. If you listen to this podcast, you know how I feel about Billy Napier. When he was hired, I really liked the hire, and it was for all the obvious reasons. Son of a coach, coached under Nick Saban, coached under Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. But then more importantly, what stood out to me is who he was and what Florida needed at this exact moment. So Florida, again, coming off that Dan Mullen era where there were highs, there were lows, you win a division title, you go to a couple big bowl games. But at the end of the day, uh, it was ebb and flow, peak and valley, good win, bad loss, um, you know, weird press conferences, whatever. And they just really, frankly, needed an adult in the room. My, my buddy, Jason Martin, who I host with on, on Fox Sports Radio on Saturday nights, said that exact thing. He said, Florida just needed an adult, and that who, that's who Billy Napier is. If you read anything about him, accountability, culture, teamwork, um, you know, this is a guy that no de- detail oriented, no detail is too small, was reading an article earlier this offseason about how, you know, he wasn't happy with the parking situation for his players at the practice facility. And so he went to the administration and said, what can I do here? What can we do about weights, facilities, meals, whatever? No details too small. I really like this hire, but I'll also readily admit that I thought it was going to take a lot longer than one game for me to be blown away by him. And that to me is why Florida is the biggest story. They're the most interesting story. And if I have one big takeaway here in week one, it's how impressed I am with the Florida Gators. And let me explain why. Again, I thought Billy Napier would get there. I thought it would take some time though. And so for me, and I know people are gonna say, oh, you know, Utah's in the Pac-12 and they don't play anybody and they're overrated. Listen, the last time we saw Utah, they went to the Rose Bowl and went score for score with an Ohio State offense that could not be stopped. Final score, 48-45. Utah put up 48, 45 points against Ohio State the last time we saw them. So don't tell me they don't play anybody. They're not good. They're not this. And why I am so impressed by Florida, why I'm impressed by Billy Napier, I just didn't think this was going to happen in week one. And what I mean by this is the following. You're playing not just a tough opponent, not just a ranked opponent. You are playing one of the most physical, tough, organized, detail-oriented teams in college football. And I just thought it's, it's going to take some time, right? It takes everybody some time. And what I loved about the Florida effort, Florida was just as physical, just as tough, just as mean, just as disciplined as the Utah Utes, okay? Florida finished the game almost equal in total yards, 451 to 446 for Utah. They had 283 yards rushing for seven yards per carry. Now, part of that was Anthony Richardson. We're going to talk about him in a minute. Um, But it was just a situation where this was the game. I mean, you you know, you could see the scenario where they take Kentucky or they take LSU or they take Texas A&M. But week one at home against such a physical, tough, um, mistake-free team like Utah – And Florida matched the physicality, matched the intensity, uh, matched really, if you want to use the word accountability, that's really what stood out to me about this weekend, was the idea that if you look at Florida, remember, this was a team that last year, and I have the notes with me right here, so let me read this, 115th in turnover margin, which means they turned the ball over a ton, didn't get get many back, and then 119th in penalties. 
And so, yeah, the penalties need to be worked on a little bit. They had seven on Saturday night in the swamp. But again, go back and look at last year. They were a complete mess. They were completely disorganized. They made the biggest mistakes at the worst possible times. And so to be together accountable, uh, you know, go toe for toe with Florida or with Utah, I am so impressed. And then let me take it a step further. I am so freaking impressed with Anthony Richardson. And you guys and girls know every Friday we do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Well, not only was I dead wrong on the Florida Gators, I was dead wrong on Anthony Richardson. Listen, we all knew the physical tools were there. This is a guy that was being projected by some as a first-round NFL draft pick, despite the fact that he started one game last year. But I sat there and said, this is a guy that came into the season with 66 total career passes. How can I get excited about this guy? I don't care about the physical tools. I need to see it. Well, I saw it on Saturday night in the swamp because this guy um, was unbelievable. 168 yards passing, 17 of 24, completed 71% of his passes. How about this? 106 yards rushing, almost 10 yards per carry, three touchdowns, and of course that two-point conversion, which was just iconic, okay? Listen, I, I don't do Heisman talk in week one, but one, he was the best player of week one in college football, and then two, and maybe more importantly, you talk about a Heisman moment, that two-point conversion against Utah, uh, credit Anthony Richardson. So listen, I don't want to overdo it with Florida because it's one game. Uh, one game doesn't make a season. It doesn't make a career, right? As I've said, they got Kentucky this coming week. They got Tennessee in a few weeks. But at the end of the day, and I say this all the time, if you're new to the show, if you're not new to the show, I'm doing the show tonight. My old radio partner, Arnie Spanner, used to say that all the time. The show is tonight. Well, all we have to base our information on tonight is the fact that Florida just beat a top 10 team at home, and I could not be more impressed. Really quickly from the Utah perspective, you know, a couple things stand out. One, you know, you just talk about a wasted opportunity. You're in the swamp. You're playing well. You're in the red zone with at worst a chance to tie and a chance to win and to end up losing in regulation. It's just a brutal way to end. And what I would say is a couple things stand out. One, um, I understand the circumstances. And I think for, I think everybody saw it, but if you didn't, Late in the game, Florida driving or Utah driving in the red zone with a chance to take the lead. They're down three. As I said, they ended up losing 29-26. They have no timeouts left. And so with 17 seconds left, they decide to drop back, pass their quarterback veteran Cam Rising, throws it into triple coverage for an interception. And so my perspective was, and I tweeted it out, everybody, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, how are you throwing the ball? in the red zone with a chance to tie this game. And people said, oh, you know, well, they didn't have any timeouts. I don't care. Listen, I don't claim to be Nick Saban. I don't claim to be uh, Sean McVay. But when you're down three with 17 seconds left, here's what you tell your quarterback. And I know this just from watching football. Throw the ball away. If you don't have a play, throw the ball away. If you don't, if you're going to be sacked, throw the ball away. It does not matter. The one thing you cannot do is throw the ball where the other team can get it, and that's exactly what happened. I think also from the Utah perspective, and so by the way, yes, I would have played for overtime. I know they always say go for the win on the road. Yeah, it's easy to say go for the win on the road uh, when you're sitting on the couch. When it's a three-point game, when you're in the red zone, yes, take a shot. But again, make sure, tell your quarterback, just get rid of the ball if you don't have a play and do not throw it where they can catch it. Beyond that, though, I just think you talk about just a crippling, crippling, crippling loss for Utah, especially in the context of what happened with Oregon and Georgia earlier in the day. And we're going to talk about that one in a minute. But what I think about when I think about this game is that Utah, again, and I know Florida is not the best team in the SEC. Even Florida fans would admit that. But you're on the road, in the swamp, with a chance to pick up a signature win. And by the way, really build some momentum. You go to UCLA later this month. You play USC at home before the middle of October. You have a chance to build some real momentum going into an early part of the Pac-12 play, which is really tough. And if you come out of that on the other side on October 15th with wins over UCLA and USC, you're probably cruising to about 10-0 and when you host Oregon late in the season. And so, one, it's just a wasted opportunity but two, you're supposed to be the representative of the Pac-12. You have a chance to force overtime. You don't. And now the Pac-12 is just behind the eight ball. Now, look, obviously, USC could be way better than we think. 
I get all that. I know that's a possibility. But at the same time, you look at it from the Utah perspective now to basically make the playoff. And I think they're probably the best team in the Pac-12. Um, you basically, one, you have to run the table. But now, two, you got to hope everybody, especially in the SEC, has a bunch of losses. Because think about this. What if Georgia and what if Alabama go to the college football or the SEC championship game undefeated? And I know people hate talking about hypotheticals in December on the first weekend of September, but I think it matters, right? Because if, if Georgia goes to the SEC championship game and loses to Alabama, we both know what's going to happen. They're going to have one loss. Utah's going to have one loss. And we're going to say, where did Utah's loss come? Oh, it came in the swamp against the team that Georgia beat. And so that's why this loss is so bad. I feel bad for Utah. I think they're really good. But to me, more than anything, the story was Billy Napier was Florida. It was a question of, can you build toughness? Can you build accountability in one off season? And again, we only have one day to really go off of, but I think he did. All right, so what I want to do, I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back and I do want to react to the Georgia game. I think there's a lot of people that would say, oh, you can't really learn anything from one week. Georgia won by 40. Oregon stinks. I think we did learn something very important. I'm going to discuss that next. The NFL season is coming next week. You probably heard. We are doing an NFL pick as part of the Aaron Torres podcast. How about this? Every week you pick every game, just winner and loser. Every week we have a winner that gets $100, and then the winner for the season gets a $1,000 cash prize. So $100 every week, a $1,000 cash prize. Let me give you some details here. NFL season is just around the corner, and wouldn't it be nice to join a pool with your buddies and have all those important bragging rights while making a little bit of money? If you remember the last March, I promoted Bracket Fanatics during March Madness, and I am glad to let you know they are also now supporting the NFL regular season and playoffs in a tournament format. So we got Bracket Fanatics. It was for March Madness now. They are doing an NFL pick em for the regular season, and we'll get to the playoff at some point. And the Aaron Torres podcast will have a pick em challenge all NFL season long, sponsored by our friends at Bracket Fanatics. Anyone can sign up and participate. This is an important part. You can sign up for free. Sign up for free simply by going to bracketfanatics.com, click join the bracket, type in Torres, and you're automatically entered. I'll also provide a link in the show description, so if you're obviously downloading this on Apple or Spotify, there will be a link in the show description, and the sign-up will be tagged on my Twitter account, at Aaron underscore Torres. So how about that? Free to enter, $100 every week, $1,000 cash prize. Let me keep going. Once you get into the pool, again, I just said it, all you have to do is make your picks each week, and each weekly winner will get a $100 cash prize. That's right, every single week, a brand new winner. And then at the end of the year, we will also give a $1,000 cash prize. A $1,000 cash prize. I'm just giving money away. I'm like Oprah to whoever gets the most correct picks. The best part, and this is really cool, even if you sign up late, you can enter in week seven and still be eligible for the individual weekly prizes. So that's what has me fired up about this. Sign up now, get ready for week one. But if you get in late, tell a friend, whatever, they can come in later and sign up for Bracket Fanatics as well. I'll be providing weekly updates on winners for this show, so make sure you're paying attention. Oh, and here's the other thing. If you want to start or join your own bracket, you can do that as well. With Bracket Fanatics, you can determine the, full, the pool fees and payouts. You yourself can handle the payouts or have Bracket Fanatics collect and distribute pool entry fees and payouts yourselves. Here's the other thing. Like the Aaron Torres Pod Pickup Challenge, you can just make your own challenge and set it for free. On top of that, there is another bonus. Besides tracking wins and payouts for every player, Bracket Fanatics allows you to send or receive bets on any game with any player in your bracket using Bracket Bucks. While fantasy football is fun, it does require a lot of time and only a few players collect a payout. With Bracket Fanatics, you can invite your friends and peers who want the social networking experience and send a little smack along the way, all while having an opportunity to win each week of the season. Go to BracketFanatics.com to start your own bracket. Join the Aaron Torres Pod Pick'em Challenge. The link is in the show description. Every week, we get, at, we get one winner, $100, and on the season... The most wins collects you $1,000 cash prize. Bracket Fanatics, BracketFanatics.com, Pool Torres.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, so here's the deal, right? Is uh, It's college football season. And sometimes in football season, what do you do? You go ahead and call an audible. So I was going to transition here to Georgia. Because I do think there are probably some important takeaways from the Georgia game, even though they won by 46 points against number 11, Oregon. But I want to switch gears, and I'm actually going to pivot to the LSU-Florida game. Uh, One, because it was just one of the craziest games that we have seen in college football in maybe ever. Uh, Two, I think there's more big takeaways coming out of that game, specifically on the LSU front. Uh, So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. I think everybody listening to this show probably saw it or at least saw highlights. But obviously, look, you know, big game for both programs. Florida State coming off a five and seven season. Mike Norvell sort of on the hot seat. We'll talk about him later. But we all know what the real story was, the big story. And that was Brian Kelly's debut at LSU. Um, And for about three quarters, it was not good. Uh, Frankly, really for about four quarters, it was not good. Um, But really, if you really just want to know about this specific game and really why we love college football as much as we do, do, all you got to do is go to the final few minutes of this game, right? So I'm not going to tell you, oh, this happened in the second quarter and in the third quarter, this happened and then out of halftime. No, everything you need to know essentially happened in the final two minutes of the game. So let's get into it. Let's discuss that final two minutes. One of the craziest sequences that I have ever seen as a college football fan, a football fan, a sports fan. But we all know how it goes. Florida State in complete control. They were the better team for the vast majority of that game. Uh, Go into the fourth quarter with a 14-point lead. LSU cuts the lead to seven. And all of a sudden, a Florida State program that you know you can start to feel the tension in the air. They haven't really had that signature win of the Mike Norvell era, almost like a little bit like a Nebraska. When things go wrong, you kind of get the sense that the program just kind of expects the worst to happen. Well, what ends up happening in the final two minutes? Just bananas, right? Uh, LSU on defense forces a punt. They have cut the lead to seven at this point. And you just sit there and think, oh my goodness, LSU is going to get the ball back and tie the game, send this to overtime, and it's going to be bananas. Florida State punts it. LSU muffs the punt inside the red zone. Florida State recovers inside their 20, inside their 10, And essentially all they got to do is run three plays, run out the clock, kick a field goal. They're up seven. And if they kick that field goal, it's game over. You're talking about a 10-point lead with under a minute to go. LSU, which could not move the ball all day. We'll talk about them in a minute. Um, Could not move the ball all day. All you got to do, just fall on the ball three times, kick a field goal, go home with the win. But because it's college football, uh, that's exactly the opposite of what happened. As Florida State, a few nice plays, pick up a few yards, force LSU to call a timeout. And then on the goal line, on the one-yard line, we all know what happened from there. Florida State fumbles the football. Up seven, under two minutes to go, and LSU recovers. LSU starts making plays. Jaden Daniels, to his credit, and we'll talk about him momentarily, uh, was phenomenal on that final drive. The transfer quarterback from Arizona State takes LSU essentially the length of the field. They're getting close. They're getting into the red zone. Throws a pass to a kid named Mason Smith. True freshman son of, or Mason Taylor, excuse me, son of Jason Taylor, the obviously the iconic former Miami Dolphin. He dives out of bounds, one second left. Oh my goodness, they're going to have one play to decide it. Only his knee goes down. We have about a six minute review. All of a sudden, the refs say because it's a first down, there is one untimed play. LSU, Jaden Daniels drops back, touchdown pass, 
And again, second time in a minute. All we got to do, just kick a, kick the extra point and the game is over. Florida State, all they had to do was kick a field goal and the game was over. They couldn't do it. LSU lines up, kicker drops back, kicker kicks, blocked by Florida State, and Florida State wins the game by one point. Final score in the Superdome, 24-23. And when I think about this game, a couple things come to mind. First, I thought Greg McElroy kind of, um, you know, he kind of explained it perfectly to end the game. Greg McElroy was calling the game for ESPN. He said, look, this is this is why we love college football, right? We spent all offseason complaining and it's over and college football is never going to be the same. The transfer portal, NIL uh, expansion. And then we have a game like that. And you're like, oh, this is why we love this sport. And I think that was the I thought that was on full display, right? is that there are some sports, right? You're not watching a random NBA game featuring two unranked, you know, there's no rankings in the NBA, but two lousy teams on a Tuesday just because you don't know what's going to happen. Same with college basketball, even the NFL. You don't get stuff like we had in the Superdome in New Orleans on Sunday night where Florida State, all they got to do is kick the, kick the field goal to win the game. They fumble on the one-yard line. LSU drives the length of the field, gets an extra play, scores. All they got to do to force overtime is to kick the PAT, and instead the PAT gets blocked. So that was what happened, right? And one thing we always do on this show, we give you the who, what, when, where, why, and then we give you the context of what it means. And I will say this. As I said a minute ago with Utah, Florida, Oftentimes, the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. And I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that the more interesting story in this case is in the losing locker room. And that certainly comes from LSU. Now, listen, I'm not going to do what everybody else in the media and everybody else on social media does. I'm not going to sit here and just tear Brian Kelly apart. Oh, he's the worst coach ever. And he's never going to make it. And did you see that video of him dancing with his recruits? And he's so out of touch. That's not what this is about. Listen, you guys and girls, I think if you've been listening to this show, you know where I stand on Brian Kelly. I think he, I think he's one of the great coaches of my lifetime, right? Was it Grand Valley State led them to multiple national titles at the D2 level? Uh, went to Central Michigan, builds that program up. Goes to Cincinnati. Uh, they were in the same conference as my alma mater, UConn. Watched him up close and in person. He was awesome there. And then, of course, goes to Notre Dame. And you can criticize Notre Dame for not winning the big one. But they won a ton of games, especially late in Brian Kelly's career. And I do think that he is going to figure things out at LSU. So if you're an LSU fan listening, if you're an LSU fan watching, this isn't going to be what every other guy that covers college football, Brian Kelly, the accent, the dancing, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, I I think the guy is going to be okay. But what I do think also was on display on on Sunday night is that this is really going to be a rebuild. And this is where I would be concerned if I was an LSU fan. I think anytime there's a coaching change, right? I think there's just this immediate assumption. Everything is going to be hunky dory. Everything's going to be incredible. Our program's going to be great. We're going to be back to winning national championships in no time. And the reality is that's really not the case in most places. I mean, even across college football this week, Florida had an incredible win, but you know, Florida was a cam rising, you know, throw the ball away or cam rising, finding a guy in the end zone from losing at home to Utah. Like let's make no mistake about that. So everyone's excited about Florida today. Same with USC. USC destroys Rice. Let's see what happens when they have to play Oregon, Utah, whatever. So it's a building process, and I'm not ready to jump off the Brian Kelly bandwagon yet. But I also think that we saw on Saturday, on Sunday, there are some real concerns for this LSU team. And a lot of it really is just a trickle-down effect from the Coach O era, right? Is that, again, I think we think LSU, all these athletes, top recruiting classes. If you watched LSU last year, Most of the same problems that they had a year ago were very much on display on Sunday night in the Superdome. First of all, first of all, Jaden Daniels was awesome. I'll give him credit because um, that was a kid. I watched him in the Pac-12. I live in Pac-12 country. I host Fox Sports Radio Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern. So I probably watch more Pac-12 football than most people. Um, I didn't think Jaden Daniels was that good, but that kid overall was absolutely fantastic on Saturday night at the Superdome. Uh, Jaden Daniels, the, the transfer quarterback, 209 yards passing, 114 yards rushing for the transfer quarterback. So he was great. The problem was everybody else. And if you go back to last year with LSU, and if you're an LSU fan, I know you're watching or listening, and you know what your biggest problem was last year. Couldn't run the ball. Couldn't block anybody up front. And that was exactly what was on display on Sunday night. 
LSU finishes the game. How about this? This is a crazy stat. So Jaden Daniels, 114 yards rushing from the quarterback position, okay? You know how much LSU had rushing the rest of the game from everybody else? 25 yards. 25 yards rushing from LSU. And that was in 14 attempts. So I'm not great at math, but when you have 14 rush attempts and you have 25 yards rushing, that is not a good sign. I think beyond that, it was, again, a lot of what was the problem for Coach O at LSU. Go back to last year. What was the number one conversation about LSU on the field, off the field? It was discipline. It was a lack of discipline. It was a lack of discipline, by the way, from the coach. We heard all the stories about Coach O after he got fired. But then there was a lack of accountability in the program, and there was a lack of accountability with the players because of the coach, not blaming 18-, 19-year-olds when your coach is out of control. But what I think is it trickled down onto the field, and that was exactly what we saw on Sunday night in New Orleans. Go back and look at that game. Think about all the mental – forget the fact that LSU couldn't run the ball. Think about all the mental mistakes that LSU made throughout the game. Okay, just just think about all of the correctable, fixable things. There was a blocked field goal early in the game. Obviously became a factor late. The two kickoff fumbles by Malik Neighbors. I don't mean to call out a kid, but a call a spade a spade. Had two, you know, two fumbles on punts. That's not good. There was a dumb, unnecessary roughness penalty from five-star linebacker Harold Perkins right in front of a ref. Greg McElroy called it out like, dude, what are you doing? Ali Gay, one of the leaders of your team, ejected for targeting in the most obvious targeting, maybe in the history of football. I mentioned the two turnovers, the two fumbles on, uh, on punt returns. By the way, there was one punt that went 31 yards. Punter that, that Brian Kelly brought from Notre Dame, 31 yards. And then finally, of course, the block PAT. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what it speaks to. By the way, this is why Brian Kelly was hired. He's an accountability structure guy. The thing you could always say about Notre Dame, sometimes they didn't have as much talent as the other team, most notably when they played Alabama and Clemson, but very rarely, if ever, did they beat themselves. And that was all LSU did. LSU, the issue was never talent. It was always beating themselves. That's why Brian Kelly was brought in. But I do think it became pretty obvious that maybe the rebuild is a little bit more um, you know, strenuous than I think a lot of us thought. Finally, and this is, again, it goes back to accountability, discipline, structure. See what happened on Monday night after, or Monday morning after the game? Keishon Boutte, love the name. They called him Booty during the game, but I've always called him Keishon Boutte, and nobody's ever corrected me. After the game, Monday morning, your best player, arguably, certainly your best NFL draft prospect, wide receiver, doesn't get a bunch of touches during the game on Sunday, has a couple drops, he doesn't look like himself, he's coming off injury. But this was a guy that Brian Kelly called out during the offseason, that he wasn't doing what he needed to do to get back on the field. See what he did after Monday morning? He went ahead and deleted everything LSU-related off of his Instagram account. Now, maybe it means nothing. Maybe it means nothing. But to me, again, it speaks to the accountability, the discipline, the fact that this is what LSU was under Coach O. This is what LSU was under Les Miles, and this is what Brian Kelly was brought in to fix. I'm not calling Keyshawn Boutte the worst person in the world, but at the same time, how many Alabama guys do you see just delete everything off Instagram when they're mad after a loss? Did Bryce Young do that after they lost to Georgia? Did Bryce Young do that after they lost to to Texas A&M last year? Do you ever see that stuff at Ohio State? Jackson Smith and Jigba doesn't get enough touches, so he's going to delete stuff off, off Instagram. Do you see it at Clemson? Do you see it at Georgia? Is Stetson Bennett running? It's it's just, it speaks to a level of immaturity from what should be one of your leaders of this team, a third-year player and very much an NFL draft prospect. By the way, at the very least, if you're an NFL draft prospect, just don't do something dumb that brings attention to you. So I'm not criticizing the kid, but I do think it speaks to a lack of accountability. And I do think it speaks to, in my opinion, some bigger picture issues that Brian Kelly has to fix. We just talked about it a minute ago with Billy Napier. Can you change a culture overnight and over an offseason? It looked like Billy Napier in week one did a pretty good job of it. We'll see about Brian Kelly. I'm not ready to give up on Brian Kelly, but all of the problems that plagued this team last year were very much in play on Sunday night in New Orleans. 
Really quickly from the Florida State perspective, you know, I don't really have a ton, right? Because on the one hand, first of all, I'll just say this, right? Is that, you know, people in my business and the media, they say, oh, I don't root for, I don't root for people. I root for stories. Well, I root for stories. It's always interesting when LSU is really good or really bad. It's much more interesting than if, uh, you know, Vanderbilt is really good or really bad. LSU is interesting, but I'm not going to lie. I was rooting for Mike Norvell. I think he's kind of had his back up against the wall since he got there, gets there during COVID. There's some weird stuff off the field, uh, team struggles. They Clemson flies down. They won't play Clemson. Weird stuff. Last year, they start 0-3. People are really questioning if he's the guy. They lose to an FCS team. They actually started 0-4. I stand corrected on that one. Um, but, you know, they, they start 0-4. They really struggle out of the gate. Again, lose to that FCS team, lose to Louisville, lose to Wake Forest. Um, and why I bring it up is because, you know, I think this guy's really feeling the heat coming into this year. Don't know the guy, never really been around him very much, but he strikes me as a good guy. And he strikes me as like, man, did that guy just need that win? Um, so from Florida State's perspective, listen, I'm happy. I don't think it changes that much, in my opinion, on them. I do still think they're probably, you know, and they're now in the upper tier of the ACC. I don't know that they're, you know, they're not being Clemson. They have to play at NC State. They have to play at Miami. And they got to play Florida, who I just talked about a minute ago and I love. So I'm not going to sit here and do the overreaction for Florida State. But I've said this many times. Sometimes I've been watching college football, college basketball sports for so long. When you have a losing team and a losing program, there are times where you just you got to get that first win to get over the hump. It's a, a random example, but I remember talking about this when Dan Hurley took over UConn basketball. They had been so bad for so long, and I just remember thinking, if they could just get one, they, they, they were losing all these close games. And I was like, if they can just get one win, they're going to go on a roll. They did that in year two. That was during the COVID year, so the NCAA tournament was canceled, and UConn hasn't looked back since. Two NCAA tournaments since then. Uh, and obviously uh, looking good into 2023, not really a UConn basketball segment. I just bring it up as an example. And I think Florida State was very much the same on Sunday night. They just needed a win. They needed something to kind of get them over the hump. Uh, and congratulations to them. Now they go to Louisville, uh, Boston College, Wake Forest, NC State, and Clemson. So good luck with that. Listen, I think they're probably an 8-4, and 7-5 and five type team. But this was the type of win you needed to have. If you lose this game, especially, by the way, because they were the better team. But if you lose that game, and then you got to go to Louisville, Boston College, Wake Forest, maybe Sam Hartman's back by then, that would have been really bad, and it could have been really negative for Mike Norvell. Uh, unfortunately, though, it's not something he has to worry about. All right, so what I want to do, I do want to take a quick break. I want to come back. And when I come back, we'll wrap the show. We'll do some rapid fire. I want to talk Georgia. I want to talk Ohio State. Little Notre Dame, some of the other odds and ends from across college football over the weekend. Going to take a quick break. I will be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power. Loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody, 
I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And so here's the deal. If you've listened to this show at all, you know I could pretty much talk as long as you need me to about pretty much anything. But rather than bore you to tears, we're going to five days a week. So I don't need to go uh, 19 minutes on an Ohio State-Notre Dame game that I don't think there were a ton of takeaways. Uh, Same with Georgia and Oregon, on and on and on. So what I'm going to do is kind of rip through probably about four or five other games and then kind of get out of here, make it a little bit of an easier Tuesday show here to open the week. Keep it to about an hour because you know Torres. You know your boy Torres. I can certainly talk. Uh, And if you want me to go an hour 20 on the week one slate, I certainly could. But let's start, uh, let's kind of wrap, and let's start with a game that I've teased kind of throughout this show, and it's the Georgia-Oregon game. And I think on one hand, I think there's a lot of people that I've kind of seen who talk about college football and say, ah, there's really nothing to take out of the Georgia-Oregon game. See, I actually completely disagree. I think there is a huge takeaway from Georgia who wins 49-3, to and I think that's why a lot of people would say there's nothing to take away. They won by 46 points. What could we possibly learn? Well, I learned something really important that we're going to get to in a minute. But before we do, let me just give you some of the raw stats on this Georgia game. Georgia comes in as about a 17-point favorite. We talked about it on Friday's show. Listen, I thought they were going to win. But after everything that they lost, I did think there was a scenario where Oregon would keep this close, right? Oregon, as I told you, top 10 recruiting class in 2019, top 10 recruiting class in 2021. Dan Lanning, when he got to campus, closed out the 2022 class very nicely. And by any tangible measurement, if you go by the recruiting rankings, and they're usually pretty accurate, Oregon has one of the 10 most talented rosters in college football. Well, Georgia made them look like they were p- playing a, a, a Pop Warner scrimmage against, uh, you know, the, the, the 12 and unders against the nine and unders. This thing was a joke. And so, first of all, there's just the raw stats that are absolutely mind boggling. Georgia, a team that we like literally as of a year ago, were like, well, they're great on defense, but how about the offense? Well, how about this for Georgia? First off, they score on nine on their first seven possessions of the game. Their first seven possessions of the game, Georgia put the ball in the end zone against one of the more talented teams in college football. The eighth possession, they punted. The ninth possession, they took a knee and the game was over. So they didn't have to punt until midway through the fourth quarter. And by then, the starters were out. If you want to know how dominant and one-sided this game is, Georgia faced the top 15 team in the country to open the season. They had their starters out by midway through the third quarter. Beyond that, again, 571 yards of total offense. If you're curious, if you didn't get to watch, if you couldn't see, 571 yards of total offense from Georgia and nine yards per play. I mean, that is ridiculous. Nine yards per play against the top 15 team coming into the season is unheard of, and it shows how good Georgia is, and it speaks to what I believe was the takeaway from this game. Question becomes, Torres, well, what was the takeaway? The takeaway was this. I believe that Georgia has officially reached the rarefied air that only one other program in college football can say that they're at. That one program is Alabama. And I believe that Georgia proved that they are on equal footing with Alabama as a program coming out of this game. And let me explain. And we we have Bama fans listen to this show. You're going to say, no, Georgia had one good year, blah, blah, blah. Let me explain. What I mean by that, what I mean by the fact that Georgia, I'm not saying they have caught Alabama as a program. What I am saying is they have ascended to the level that Alabama is at, and that level is this. So I've been doing this a long time, okay? I've been in the media here for about 10, 12 years, basically the entire time that Nick Saban has been at Alabama. He got there a year or two before I really started in this business. But I bring it up because when Nick Saban got to Alabama, he wins his first national championship in uh, 2009. And really for about the four or five years after Nick Saban won that first national championship, there was something that would happen every offseason, which was pretty straightforward. Every single offseason, we would try to find the reason that Alabama was going to take a step back the following year. Well, they lost this many guys to the NFL draft. Well, they lost this coordinator. They lost this many coaches, or they lost this guy, or they, this guy's switching positions, or uh, the, the schedule's tough, or this out-of-conference game, or this team in the conference is, is, is looking better. And we looked and we looked and we looked and we waited and we waited. And every year it was something new. They lost a coordinator. They lost this player. They lost that player. And every year Alabama was awesome again. And finally, after about four or five years of doing this, everybody in the media just stopped. Everybody in the media was just like, okay, until Nick Saban proves to me that he's not going to win 11 games and compete for a national championship, I'm going to stop picking against this team in the preseason. Why do I bring it up? 
It is because I believe that Georgia officially ascended to that level on Saturday afternoon. Now, you could argue prior that Georgia was already there. I mean, the the numbers that Kirby Smart has put up in the win-loss column since this whole run really started, um, it's pretty incredible, right? Uh, That first year where they make the title game, they lose to Alabama, they win 13 games, then they win 11, then they win 12, then they win eight during a COVID year, then they win 14 last year. So they've already been on this level. But why I think they reached a new level on Saturday is because they officially proved it doesn't matter who they lost, how many players, what positions, they are so loaded, so talented that they are not going to miss a beat. I mean, just think about everything Georgia lost. And I talked about it plenty in the preseason, so you already know. 15 NFL draft picks. That's an all-time record. They lost a record-setting number of NFL draft picks. They had five guys go in the first round. They lost their top two rushers. They lost their best wide receiver in George Pickens. And they put up 571 yards of total offense. Didn't miss a beat. Looked like if there was ever a year that Georgia just had to step back. One, there's the natural just, hey, you know, we want a title. Let's go easy. No, no, no. That's not what happened with Georgia. But then two, they go to the Georgia Dome almost with a chip on their shoulder. Like nobody believes in us. Everybody thinks that we lost too much. Let's prove a point, and that's exactly what they did. You know, really two things. If you want to know how talented Georgia is, two things from that game broadcast really stood out to me when I go back and think about it. One, I don't know if you heard this during the game, but they were talking about the transfer portal. Greg, I think it was Greg McElroy. Who was calling the game? I can't even remember. It wasn't Greg McElroy. It was uh, Todd Blackledge and, and Sean McDonough. And they were talking about the transfer portal, and it's been a topic of conversation all offseason long, right? And they asked Kirby Smart about it. They said, you've taken, they took one transfer this offseason. Okay, so think about Ole Miss took 20 plus players. USC took 20 plus players. LSU took 15 plus players. I don't know how many. Georgia took one. And they asked Kirby Smart, why did you only take one player? And he said, our policy is we're not going into the portal unless we are going to get a better player than the guys that we have on this roster. So what you mean to tell me is we had 2,000 players enter the transfer portal and one player, and we can't even confirm. By the way, I saw Georgia beat writers saying, yeah, according to our records, they don't have a single transfer. But let's say they have one. Kirby Smart went into the portal and said, all these guys that USC wants, that LSU wants, that whoever wants, we think our guys are better than all of them. So that's one. And then two, I don't know if you guys heard this after the game, but Kirby Smart was asked about, you know, what does this mean? You beat your, your pupil, Dan Lanning. Dan Lanning, the current Oregon coach, remember he was the head uh, defensive coordinator at Georgia. And what Kirby Smart said after the game was pretty simple. He said, look, Dan will never admit this. Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, will never admit this. We just have better players, and he knows it. And so what that says to me, Kirby is confident. Georgia is confident. They have always had talent. But now you know what they have? They have the belief. They have the mindset that they can and will be able to beat anybody That is scary for the rest of college football, Uh, and I would be very concerned going forward. I believe they've ascended to that Alabama status where they're officially, doesn't matter who they lose, they are not missing a beat. Let's keep things going, go through the rest of the weekend that was in college football. Again, try to make it quick. So Ohio State beats Notre Dame, and it's wild because I was on air doing Fox Sports Radio during this game. And while we were on air, we go on air, and Notre Dame's up 10-7. And Jason Martin, my radio partner, and I were talking, and oh my goodness, we're about to have this crazy upset. And what? who could have imagined? And then by the end of the game, Ohio State pulled away, final score 21 to 10. And so I think coming out of the game, really, I think there were two takeaways that everybody had. And I actually disagree with both of them. One, it was that the offense really struggled and the offense really stunk and that the defense really stepped up. And I don't know that I really agree with either of them, okay? So in terms of the offense, right? So the argument for the Ohio State offense it, it stinking is pretty straightforward. They, like they, they, they weren't good. Like by the, the standard that Ryan Day has set at Ohio State. Remember, this is a team that put up 40, what, 48 points in the, in, the, um, in the Rose Bowl the last time we saw them. They weren't very good. And as I said, they had seven points at halftime. They were down 10-7 early in the third quarter. But they were clearly out of sorts. Their best wide receiver, Jackson Smith and Jigba, got hurt early. If you watched Ohio State, Jackson Smith and Jigba was basically C.J. Stroud's security blanket. And so I'm not really that surprised that they struggled early. And to their credit, they pulled away late. 
C.J. Stroud, for all the struggles, finished with 223 yards passing, almost seven yards per completion, two touchdowns. For C.J. Stroud, that's like a C-plus to a B-minus game. For a lot of quarterbacks, that's like an A to an A-plus. So there's that element of it. And to Ohio State's credit, they finished with 172 yards rushing, almost five yards per carry. And so when I look at this offense, I think it's easy to say they only scored 21 points. This is a team that averaged 40-plus points per game last year, but they only they only score 41. And again, or they only score 21. They average 45 a game. And I think the assumption, well, they, they, you know, they struggled. I don't buy that at all. Their starting quarterback did not have his best wide receiver. The running game stepped up late. And you got to win any way that you can. And so when I look at this Ohio State team, I, th- I think the offense wasn't great. I think it was good enough. And here's the best part. Jackson Smith and Jake was not out for the year. He's going to get healthy. And I think Ohio State's going to be just fine. Now, what's really interesting is if you kind of followed the post game, the post game was this defense, which really stunk last year. Again, 59th in the country. I've talked about it a million times. 59th in the country on defense. Oh, my goodness. They stink. And oh, my goodness, they're so improved with the new defensive coordinator, Jim Knowles. And I don't know if I buy that either. And it's not that Jim Knowles was bad. It's not that the defense was bad. It's not that I don't want to give them credit. But I do think we have to consider who they play. They played a Notre Dame team that, as I told you before the game, starting quarterback, first game starter, first time ever as a starter at the college level, um, lost a thousand yard rusher in Kyron Williams, lost their best wide receiver to the NFL. Offensive line was banged up coming into this one. And so, as I told you on, on, on I guess it would have been Friday's show, if there was ever a game that you would want Ohio State's defense to look good, this better be it. If Ohio State gave up 31 points this game, that's when you have to start to worry. And so I don't want to belabor or overdo the point. I just don't know that, like, I feel like I learned all that much from on Ohio State's defense. And I think we're going to learn a lot more going forward um, as they play Wisconsin, as they play Michigan State, as they play Penn State, as they play Michigan on and on throughout the season. But what I would also say is that Ohio State was a team that was a lot of finesse. They weren't very physical. And so to kind of control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, I think it's nothing but a positive coming out of week one. Finally, really quickly from the Notre Dame perspective, a couple things. One, um, you know, I don't have a ton for Notre Dame. I don't think it was a good performance by Marcus Freeman. I don't think it was a bad performance by Marcus Freeman. I think, if anything, it showed why Marcus Freeman is there. I watched that game, and even when Notre Dame had the lead, there was never a moment where you sat there and said, oh, man, they're about to break this open. Oh, man, they have Ohio State on their heels. No, it was more like, You know, you kind of go through the box score. They had a big first play of the game. Um, And then after that, that, you know, that set up a field goal. And after that, you know, there there really wasn't a ton of offense. And so what I mean when I say this is why Marcus Freeman is here, this is why Marcus Freeman's here. The reason he replaced Brian Kelly as the head coach is because when I watched Notre Dame on Saturday, I felt like there was nobody that really scared Ohio State. And I think Ohio State kind of knew we can play a B to B minus game. And we could still get out of here with a win because you look at Notre Dame. Who's the guy that's going to scare you. They didn't have an elite running back. They didn't have elite wide receiver. They don't appear to have elite edge rushers and maybe Ohio state's just good in certain positions, but that's why Marcus Freeman is there. Right? Because when you look at Notre Dame, that's been what's missing. They've been good along the offensive lines. They've been fine on defense, but they haven't been elite anywhere. And for Notre Dame to take the next step to become a true national championship contender, They're going to have to start to get some of those dudes. Now, will they ever be able to go down to the South and beat out Alabama and Texas A&M and Georgia for the four, five, six difference makers every single class that they're going to need? I don't know. But I thought, look, watching on Saturday, it was clear they just don't have those guys. They just don't have the wide receiver that if he gets behind you, it's game over. The running back that if he breaks a tackle, it's game over. The edge rusher that you have to double and triple team. And then you got the guys on the other side that are coming when you double and triple team the first guy. So for Notre Dame, I just think they are who they are. Uh, I think they're fine. I do look at their schedule. We're going to talk about Clemson right now, but they play BYU is a pretty good team. They play them in Vegas. They play Clemson later in the year at home. They play USC. USC looked pretty good. And if I'm Notre Dame, I'm sitting here saying, um, you know, they look like an eight and four, maybe if everything breaks right, nine and three type team to me. I just didn't see really any difference makers. They might get there under Marcus Freeman, but they're not there yet. Really quickly, kind of ripping through the rest of the scores. Listen, I think we'll talk Clemson maybe on Tuesday's show. They did close out the victory over Georgia Tech. Um, If you watch the game, 
I'm just not sold that DJ Uliganale is the guy. Now they won 41 to 10, but first of all, the backup Kate Klubnick came in and was awesome. Like the second he came in four of six passing 50 yards and a touchdown DJ, by the way, uh, 19 of 32, 209 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions. Listen, all I'll say about Clemson really quick. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Clemson's got a national championship defense. They need a national championship quarterback. I think the backup Kate Klubnick is the guy. I think he showed it in limited time on Saturday, on, on Monday night. And I think it's, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. I said it on Friday's show. I truly believe that by the end of Monday night, we were going to know if DJ's the guy. I just don't think he is. Sure, he's a nice kid. Sure, he works hard. But this is big boy college football now. We're in the NIL world. You're getting paid millions of dollars. You got to deliver. I don't think he does. Uh, maybe we'll talk about Clemson a little bit more, but I really liked what I saw from Kate Klubnick. Concern from uh, from DJ Uyghurlanda. A couple other scores from Saturday. Uh, first of all, USC. Listen, I'm not going to overdo the USC hype, but when you score 66 points in any game, that's always good. When you score 66 points in your first game as a head coach or, or your first game under a head coach, that's huge. They beat Rice 66 to 21. But the thing that really jumped out to me. Three defensive touchdowns for USC on Saturday, okay? When is the last time, if you watch USC very closely, and I know a lot of you probably didn't, as USC went 66-14, to 14, USC won the turnover battle 4 nothing. They had almost 600 yards of total offense. I mean, you can we, we can dance around the, you know, it's too early to know, and I think it is, and we're going to find out this weekend because USC goes on the road and plays Stanford. When you put up 66 points, when you have three defensive touchdowns and, and 540 yards of total offense, that is a pretty solid performance from USC. Uh, a couple other scores. One, Michigan, I know we talked a lot about the quarterback situation there. Um, I don't know that it mattered, but, uh, you know, Michigan wins going away. They look the same as last year, physical, tough. They're going to eventually, I think J.J. McCarthy ends up being the starter. That'll be interesting. You know, Arkansas, Cincinnati, I don't know that I have some crazy takeaway from that game. Cincinnati did leave a lot of points on the field, 10 penalties, 65 yards, two turnovers, um, you know, some special team stuff. I came away more impressed by Cincinnati in a loss, even though they did lose by seven at Arkansas. For Arkansas, listen, this is what they do, right? KJ Jefferson was phenomenal as he always is. Uh, They ran the ball. They were physical at the line of scrimmage. Listen, Arkansas had 224 yards rushing, five yards per carry. If they can do that against a physical team like Cincinnati, I like how they hold up against other teams. They play South Carolina this weekend and obviously the rest of the SEC West. Finally, I'll give a shout out to a team that I wouldn't normally. How about the Arizona Wildcats? So Arizona went on the road and played San Diego State in a game that San Diego State opened a brand new stadium. San Diego State won 12 games last year. Arizona smacked them. And so I talked earlier about the transfer portal with Kirby Smart. Obviously talked about it throughout the show. Um, But you look at Arizona, their head coach, Jed Fish, was very aggressive. They got a kid named Jaden Delora, the Pac-12 freshman of the year last year, a quarterback at Washington State. They got a star wide receiver named Jacob Cowing, three touchdowns for him. I liked what I saw from Arizona. They play Mississippi State this weekend. Uh, so really excited to see them there. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do think it is time for me to get out of here. Before we do, want to remind everybody, make sure you're subscribed. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. And really quickly, it's go time. College football is here. We're going to five days a week. Uh, also, thank you to our presenting sponsors, Betfred Sportsbook. Thank you to Bracket Fanatics. Make sure you sign up. Bracket Fanatics, I'm giving away a ton of money. You can sign up even after the NFL season begins. But if you click the link in the show description, you can sign up for the Bracket Fanatics Challenge tonight. That is all for today's show. It is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Tor Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back tomorrow. All new episode. Aaron Torres Sports Podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.